0: Welcome to the Open to Hope show. I'm your host, Dr. Gloria Horsley, with my co-host and daughter, Dr. Heidi Horsley. This show is brought to you by the Compassionate Friends and the Open to Hope Foundation. We've got a guest today that we are going to be talking about grief and loss, but also recovery and the things that you can do to help yourself recover from the experience of having the loss of a child. Heidi, do you want to introduce our guest?
1: Sure, Mom, I'd love to. Our guest today is Dr. Neil Raisman, and he lives in Columbus, Ohio, where his surviving daughter and two grandchildren and son-in-law live. He is a consultant to colleges and universities in topics of academic customer service and retaining students. He is also the author of Standing on One Leg, 70 Pieces on Death, Grief, and Finding Balance, about his son Isaac, who died of meningitis at the age of 26. Welcome
0: to the show, Neil.
2: Thank you. Glad to be here.
0: Hi, Neil. It's great to have you on the show today. I wanted to ask you, I noticed your son died of meningitis. We've had a couple of people that we know whose kids have died of meningitis in college. Was Isaac in college?
2: No, Isaac wasn't in college. He was sort of an abnormality. Meningitis, as uh, you may know and your listeners may know, is a virulent disease. That strikes young college-age people generally, killing or maiming them without a way to stop it once it struck. But uh, Isaac was not in college at the time. He was 26 years old, uh, living on the east side of uh, New York City, working, had a good job, uh, had his own apartment, was very successful, very engaged in life, uh, very happy to greet each day. Except one day he woke up with a headache, and by the end of the afternoon, meningitis had killed him. Wow. wow so that's, unbelievable. Uh, that's how we lost Isaac.
1: Unbelievable how quickly it takes somebody's life.
0: Yeah, unbelievable. How many yeah. years ago was this?
2: This was nine years ago. Uh
0: You're really able to talk about it and deal with it. I know that you're working to get a meningitis B vaccine. Now, I understand that we had some friends whose daughter died, and they went to Canada and got a shot. Was that meningitis B?
2: Yeah, it could very well have been a vaccine that they have now for meningitis B. There have been vaccines for the other three strains of meningitis, but there has not been a vaccine for meningitis B until recently. It's available in a number of countries. Canada may very well be one, but in the States, it's being held up by a committee of the CDC. Uh, this committee decides if a vaccine could be approved for insurance to allow people to afford the vaccine for meningitis. That's why I've been working with this group called the Global Healthy Living Foundation to let people know that this vaccine should be made available to people immediately and not available only to the rich who can afford it without uh, insurance.
0: I know you work with colleges, and you've written a best-selling book on the power of retention, keeping kids in school, college age. I wondered, since you know so much about the colleges, are they telling people to get meningitis shots before the kids come in?
2: It's a strange thing. New York State, for example, requires you to either get a meningitis shot or to sign a release saying that you know you should have gotten it, but you didn't get it, which is really, excuse me, is stupid. We know that meningitis is something that the death sentence usually, and if you survive, you often survive maimed or mentally impaired.
1: Wow, I didn't know that. Doesn't meningitis look like the flu? I mean, how would people know if they had it? Is there things you can do quickly uh, to rule it, rule it out or to rule it in?
2: No. No. Okay. That's, it, it, and the, the worst part, it does look like the flu. In fact, mm-hmm. Isaac called us up in the morning, called his mother up in the morning and said, I've got a terrible headache. I feel sick to my stomach. I get cold. I get chills. And Eileen said, it sounds like you got the flu. bed right. And drink fluids. If he had gone to an emergency room, they would have said, healthy young man in great shape because Isaac used to work out every single day. You got the flu. Go home. The worst part is that even by the time he had called his mother, his death was predicted because once meningitis wow. starts, stats, can't stop it. The only way to stop it is to get a vaccine. And,
0: wow, that's why this vaccine is so important. Yeah, you were the one that found him, right?
2: Yeah, I, um, Eileen had been, and I had been calling him all day trying to get in touch with him, and we couldn't. And I had assumed that he had turned his phone off so he'd get some sleep. But after we couldn't get in touch with him at all all day, I, I, Drove back from a conference that I was an educational conference in the upper part of the state of New York, and drove back. And um, took me quite a while to get into the apartment. I rang the doorbell. Of course, he didn't answer. I pounded on his door. He didn't answer. I finally got let in by the superintendent, and it was uh, my um, experience to come into the bedroom and find him on the floor dead.
0: Wow. Mm. How did you cope with it?
2: I coped with it by going into what I call administrative mode. Uh, I was a college president at the time, and what I did was I shut down. My emotions Mm. just shut down. This became a problem to solve, and I was able to deal with it that way. I called the police. They came over. They did some investigation, um, but basically I did it. I managed to survive it by shutting down. Otherwise, I don't think I could have.
0: And, and how long did you shut down?
2: I shut down probably for about six years. I was My emotions were flat. I had a great deal of grief, of course, and a great deal of anger. But in terms of dealing with issues and people, I was pretty emotionless. Uh, mm-hmm. I was fearful of letting the emotions out because if that cracked a little bit, I knew I was going to go deep. And it was going to take me a long time to get out of the depths of total grief.
0: Did you see your wife grieving differently?
2: Yes, Eileen grieved very differently. Her grief began with the uh, universal question of what did I do wrong? Uh, she used to say I'm I'm his mother. I should have been able to protect him.
1: Right. So she- uh, that's what I was thinking. I was thinking so many parents and moms have that that feeling. I mean, I know my mom did. What could we have done differently and we should have could have would have, you know, you like to go back and replay things over and over.
2: Sure, well you do know, you you're, you're the parent and the parent is right. Like, protect the child. And mm-hmm. therefore, I didn't protect the child. One of two things has occurred. Either I failed or I did something so terrible that I deserved this fate.
0: Did you get have a turning point that brought you out of it?
2: It wasn't a specific turning point, but there was a, a series of events that started bringing me out of it. And one of them was by attending Compassionate Friends meeting. Mm. It gave me the safe Environment and opportunity to be able to allow the grief and the pain to be expressed in a way, and to people who would understand. Mm-hmm. Therefore, I could just sort of let the pressure off a little bit at a time. It was a uh, a very long process, and it was one that didn't have a demarcation point, or of a steady a slog through grief. I like what you're at saying, up,
1: Neil, and you know, my mom and I are very involved in compassionate friends and. What's interesting, too, is that we've had so many guests on that have said, you know, when we first went to Compassionate Friends, we didn't even talk. Some people go and they talk, and some people go and they just listen. And just being there is the beginning of them being able to kind of start to get in touch with the enormity of the feelings.
2: Grief is an isolating event. It cuts you off from people and the rest of the world, and you feel as if no one could feel the same thing that I feel. No one could have the depth Mm -hmm. of pain and anguish that I am feeling. But when you go to a Compassionate Friends meeting, or probably other organizations too, but certainly Compassionate Friends, what you find is that there are others who will allow you to talk about it without either uh, looking at you like you might give them the uh, the death flu. Um, <laughs> I like that. Fear of being around someone who has lost a child and thinking, I might, it could happen to me. or. Right give you the snap-out-of-it routine.
0: I went to a meeting. It was kind of interesting the other day, and uh, I noticed this woman all of a sudden just broke down and cried, you know? And everyone, just this woman next to her, held her hand, and we all waited. And then she finished, and then we carried on and and talked to her after. But, you know, she did that, and it was okay.
2: Yep. And for me, compassion and friends was very important. For me, I think my anger finally peaked when I found myself uh, challenging God to a uh, fistfight. <laughs> and I would have had enough anger that I think I could have taken him two out of three.
0: <laughs> now, how, how early in your grief did you go to the Compassionate Friends? I'm curious.
2: Probably we started going two years into it. Okay.
0: Yeah, I think that's important for people to know. Some people come right away. Some people don't want to come right away. Some people come later. Some people, we see them and then we don't see them for a year and they're back. Or we see some people have friends at the candle lighting. Uh, We see them at the national conference in July, people that maybe we haven't seen for a couple of years. So that's the beauty of having an organization there. You can pick and choose.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah, one of the sad parts is that so many people don't know about Compassionate Friends. We found out, as other people do, from someone else who had lost a child and went to Compassionate Mm Friends. Otherwise, I I didn't know about it. I wouldn't have known about it. Uh, Well,
1: Neil, we've recently partnered with Compassionate Friends so that we can help right. build awareness for this organization because, like you said, every bereaved parent and sibling out there needs to realize that this organization is out there and it's for them if they need it and it's free and it's, it's you know, in their area because far too many people don't know about it. What um, I'm wondering, we, too, I have a question for you about you You sure. talked about how you were pretty shut down because you were almost – it sounds like you were almost afraid that you would be overwhelmed by the feelings, which I think is a normal thought. How were you able to visit your grief and be in the feelings without having them overwhelm you when you first started to get more in touch with your feelings?
2: Well, I think when I first started getting in touch with my feelings, they did tend to overwhelm me quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, I had a huge amount of anger that's one way I handled it was was with anger and a huge amount of. Defeatism. I felt as if I had been defeated. I had been found myself doing things like driving home and wondering how difficult it would be to turn the wheel to the left and go into the other lane and just end it all. It took quite a bit of time. One of the coping mechanisms was starting this book. I'm a writer, anyhow, but I started writing about the events. I began, and the book begins with Isaac's death. I went to the details of that. Uh, all the details of the funeral and what happened after that. And every little piece that came along, not every little piece, but the major events are all written about. And it became a great catharsis for me to be able to express this through writing because I found I had trouble expressing it in other ways.
0: That's great. Did you do it on the computer or by hand? Because we're finding some of the people are talking about writing by hand can be very cathartic too.
2: Oh, I'm sure it can. It, uh, that's an interesting question because I look back, I wrote the first few chapters by hand oh, on gorgeous. a train on the way to a meeting, and then the rest of it I've done by computer, but I started it by hand.
1: And were the first few chapters the, the story of your son's death?
2: Yes, it was the a story of the whole day uh, leading up to his uh, my finding him. What's
1: interesting about this piece, Neil, is that the research shows that if you've had a traumatic loss, writing about the the trauma of the actual death itself, like my mom said, by hand, helps you to kind of work through it and helps you to almost purge, get it out of your system. It really helps people in the healing process. Yeah, it
2: does. And, And it's why when I wrote the book and I decided I was going to make it into a book, I decided to do two things. One, leave nothing out, including stuff that makes me look kind of crummy because I was not a perfect person during grief, that's for sure. (laughs) And at the same time, not.
0: I'm laughing because grieving people are so freaking crazy. (laughs) I remember how crazy I was.
1: I was going to say none of us are perfect. I think that will speak to people more because they'll, they'll see some of themselves in that now, when you're honest. Now, let me
0: say, I want to say the name of the book because I really love it. Standing on one leg, 70 pieces on death, grief, and finding balance. And do you want to read something to us?
2: Sure. This is a section I call grief. I can only explain it one way to those who ask how I am, to anyone who dares ask if I'm getting over it. My son's death was like having a leg cut off. The edge where it was hacked off, remaining raw and exposed, scabbing over at times, just waiting for someone to rip the scab off with a question or comment to again expose the raw meat of pain to the air. Grief is like losing a leg, having it ripped off. It is always gone. It will always be gone. I constantly miss it. Phantom pain always reminding me of the loss. I'm secretly jealous of all of those who still have both legs, but cannot say so. It would seem unseemly so i live with one leg i am now a one-legged man no matter what i do the leg cannot grow back it'll never come back it is gone forever i may have moments when there is a sense of it a ghost sensation of what was my leg maybe even a fleeting feeling it is really not gone but it is the rest of my life is one of grieving my lost leg every day is merely one of trying to find balance on one foot Trying to find a way to go through life on one leg while pretending to all of those who can't see the empty pant leg is somehow full. That's it. Balancing on one foot.
0: Mm. Wow, that's a powerful piece. Very, very powerful.
1: Mm -hmm. It's such a great metaphor for what does happen after the death of a child and a sibling. And I hear it all the time from bereaved parents. It feels like you have lost a limb. So I I like that idea of, okay, how do I now live my life with one leg severed?
2: Yeah, and for me, it's an apt metaphor because I can so easily get knocked over.
0: Mm. Oh, uh, yeah. All it takes, I
2: like that. All yeah, it, yeah all, all it takes for me is to see a, uh, a book that I would have liked to buy for Isaac, but I can't, and I'm just knocked right over. The book is, I wrote the book in a way that I consider to be immediate and kind of muscular language. Mm-hmm. I find that a lot of the books don't face it as... Strongly, as I try to face it and make sure I leave nothing out, like little things like how cortisol makes you lose your memory. Mm. There was a whole group of us at a compassionate friends meeting. We all started talking about how we don't remember anything anymore, and no one had ever mentioned it.
0: Right. It sounds like that you've really gone out and done some research and good work on this kind of thing. Tell people how they can get your book.
2: Well, what they can do is they can write to me, and I'll send them a PDF of the uh, manuscript. The book is going through the process of being printed, but it's not going to be available until they finish that process. Unfortunately, it takes a little bit of time, so I'll be glad to share. If someone writes to me by email at neil N-E-A-L-R, at com, I'll be glad to share part of the book with them.
0: All right. Well, Neal, thank you so much for being on the show today.
2: My pleasure. Thank you for asking. I hope that my comments might help somebody with their own grief.
0: Thank you, Neil,
1: and thank you for being a writer for Open to Help and for helping so many people out there who have lost their way
2: after the death of a child. My pleasure. Thank you for asking. Anytime.
0: Heidi, I I really enjoyed getting a male perspective on the show today. Another guy talking about how he did submerge those feelings and uh, didn't really come out with him for about six years. I I think it's important to know this is a long process.
1: Yeah, exactly. And I love it, too, because Neil is very honest. And I think that's very helpful because it normalizes it for people that are listening. And there might be guys out there or women out there that are listening and say, okay, wait a minute, I'm going through the same thing. There's nothing wrong with grieving because I loved my child so much or my sibling so much. We hurt so much because we love so much. And grief is a physical assault to the system.
0: Thanks for listening to our show today. I'm your host, Dr. Gloria Horsley, with my co-host, Dr. Heidi Horsley. We hope that you'll tell people about this show. And again, it's brought to you by the Compassionate Friends and the Open to Hope Foundation. And Heidi and I like to close the show by saying, if you've lost hope, please lean on ours till you find your own. And God bless.